Hello, and welcome to the Restray Care February 2024 Editor's Commentary and Podcast. This is Rich Branson. I'm Editor-in-Chief of Respiratory Care. This month's Editor's Choice is a study by Arne Surratt and colleagues. It is a report of a non-inferiority study of bronchodilator delivery via high-flow nasal cannula and a vibrating mesh nebulizer versus a jet nebulizer in COPD subjects. The study was a crossover physiologic study where subjects received bronchodilator delivery with each nebulizer type with a four-hour washout period between treatments. Spirometry, lung volumes, and impulse oscillometry were performed at baseline and after each intervention. The primary outcome was a change in forced expiratory volume in one second from baseline. In 17 subjects, both methods significantly improved FEV1 from baseline. The main finding was that nebulizer time was reduced. Fratt and colleagues provide an accompanying opinion highlighting the potential improved pulmonary deposition using vibrating mesh nebulizer, but also noting that drug delivery using high-flow nasal cannula systemic absorption likely plays a role. I think this has been true in particular with high-flow nasal cannula and the use of epoprostanol, where it's clear the drug gets absorbed into the nasal mucosa. Um, studies that look at the, these metabolites in urine would clarify this role. Ramirez et al. describe implementation of a 36-hour training program fo- focused on detection of patient ventilator asynchrony detection by healthcare professionals. They presented physicians 120 cases of patient ventilator asynchrony using a six-hour training session followed by one-hour training sessions daily for 30 days. Subjects were assessed using a 30-question assessment tool before and after training. They found that identification of patient ventilator asynchrony was improved post-test and after one month. In a similar paper, Shelby and others report the results of a survey of patient ventilator asynchrony detection by critical care physicians. They presented four clinical cases of patient ventilator asynchrony, including double-triggering, auto-triggering, ineffective efforts, and premature cycling. Only 29% of physicians correctly identified the PVAs. Ineffective efforts were the most commonly not identified, with double-triggering being uh, identified in more than half cases. They concluded that there were deficiencies in identification of patient ventilator asynchrony amongst critical care physicians. In this study, the staff did better than the residents, which I suppose is no surprise. Liendo and Miralis Cabodavia provide commentary on both papers. They suggest that both technological and educational strategies are required to improve detection and correction of patient ventilator asynchrony. They stress the importance of hands-on learning and an approach similar to advanced cardiac life support training where an individual would get a certification for mechanical ventilation. In addition, they note that artificial intelligence may provide improved detection, prediction, and notification regarding patient ventilator asynchrony. This is an important topic for a respiratory therapist and something we will hope to feature in the journal in months to come. Dominic and others provide a single-center retrospective review on planned extubations across ICUs in a children's hospital. Over a five-year time frame, 408 unplanned extubations were identified in 339 subjects. Half of unplanned extubations were unwitnessed. Contributing factors included performing routine care, refixation of tubes, and in this case in pediatric patients being held by family members. Desaturation and bradycardia were the most common events, and reintubation was common in the the neonatal ICU, while least common in the cardiac ICU. 
they concluded that unplanned extubations are common and two-thirds of them will require reintubation within 72 hours. Ubilisaka et al. randomized subjects with moderate to severe COPD to no treatment or use of positive expiratory pressure during spot marching exercise at a constant speed. This group of authors developed a conical PEP mask um, from, from local resources. Exercise endurance time and end exercise symptoms were recorded. They noted that the use of the conical PEP mask improved exercise time in subjects with COPD, possibly by delaying dynamic hyperinflation. We often think of exercise intolerance and COPD as being related to hypoxemia, but perhaps as often or more often, it's because as the respiratory rate increases and the dynamic hyperinflation increases, it reduces the ability to increase the respiratory rate, resulting in fatigue and dyspnea. Villalba and colleagues described the epidemiology and outcome of subjects suffering from COVID-19 referred to specialized weaning centers. Over an 18-month period, they enrolled 568 subjects with tracheostomy following COVID-19 infection, 315 of whom required long-term mechanical ventilation. The mortality rate in this group was low, and three-quarters of the subjects were weaned and discharged home. Advanced age, prolonged ICU duration of mechanical ventilation before discharge, and high comorbidity burden were impediments to home discharge. Ari and others surveyed chairs and program directors of United States bachelor's and master's degree respiratory care programs using a modified survey of perceived organizational support instrument. The response rate was 69%, which is pretty good for a lot of surveys that we see, and faculty reported being satisfied with their job and their employers. Age and gender were inversely related to per perceived organizational support. Stillman and colleagues provide a life cycle analysis of closed versus open suction systems and the environmental footprint of each. They note that the closed suctioning systems produce far more CO2 and particulate matter, but pointed out that closed suctioning used over days eliminated this advantage after a day. Brian Ring and I provide some commentary introducing the importance of sustainability in healthcare with an emphasis on respiratory therapy. Across a 40-year career now, I've seen many aspects of care that we provide go from reusables to disposable and this has been convenient and probably cost savings but we have to start to think about what these things do to our environment in terms of cost in raw materials cost of manufacturing cost of transporting devices from where they're manufactured to where they're used as well as any type of reusability or potentially recycling and trying to avoid both plastics ending up in landfills and in the ocean, as well as needing to be incinerated. This is a really popular topic in Europe at the moment, and I think we'll continue to see more issues related to this problem in the United States in very short order. Morazzo and coworkers provide a short report on the changes in ventilation distribution with alterations in trunk inclination in subjects with ARDS. Using traditional restroom mechanics and EIT, they found the supine flat position resulted in worse ventilation homogeneity. This is something that um, I think has, has been known for some time. Um, one of the reasons we nurse patients in a semi-fowler's position as well as for VAP prevention. Um, but the use of EIT allows us to see aspects of lung inflation and lung collapse, which we've never had the opportunity to see um, outside of the um, CT scanner. 
McHenry contributes a narrative review on airway clearance and subjects with ALS, highlighting the keys to successful mechanical insufflation exfiltration use and the importance of secretion clearance for patient quality of life. Rhea et al. provide a scoping review on health inequities and management of patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. They provide evidence for health inequities in underserved populations and suggest potential solutions. In our continuing series on research and publication in respiratory care, Linda Goodfellow pens a review discussing the continuum of research in entry-level education to postgraduate respiratory care. Andy Miller and colleagues provide an overview of data management in human subjects research. This is a really important topic and one that um, unless you seek out the actual training on it, it's not just natural for you to pick up how to do data management, and it's a very important aspect of human subjects research. We thank you for subscribing to the Restorate Care Podcast, your support of the journal and your support of the AARC, and we look forward to seeing papers from you in the future. Thank you. To receive the content of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.